discussing covenant theology. And uh, this is going to be, especially today, rather full of content. So we need to jump right in. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. Genesis, chapter 9. The goal of this series is to help you be at home with covenant theology, to feel uh, familiar and comfortable with what covenant theology is, and also to, in particular, know how it applies in particular to the home, but we will discuss many applications over the next three weeks. Today we're talking about something referred to as the Noahic covenant, which is the covenant that God made with Noah following the global flood, and that is found in, as I said, in Genesis chapter 9. Now, the unique feature of this, this particular covenant is that it is given to all people and is in a way sort of a minimum list of ideas that mankind has to embrace in order to live something approximating a good life. Uh, when I read this content to my wife, she said, the Noahic covenant reminds her a little bit of an agreement between a landlord and a leasee. It's as if God is saying, okay, I own this, you're going to live here. Here are the basic terms of our working together in habiting this place called Earth. And the one distinct feature I want to show you on the front end is this thing I've already referenced, and that is, is that the Noahic covenant is what they would call a covenant of common grace, a covenant of common grace. And lots of theologians refer to it that way. So what is common grace? grace. Well, we could say that common grace is an extension of God's unmerited kindness to all peoples everywhere for all time. So you have, in a way, you could talk about God's grace in two kind of columns. You could say that God's grace is common toward all people, and then God's grace is special toward those who are being saved. God's special grace appears specifically through the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we will see a little bit later. And God's common grace is extended through other covenants that he has offered to humanity, including this covenant through Noah. One way to think about this would be to say that God's special grace keeps Christians from going to hell in a literal way. And God's common grace keeps the world from going to hell in a figurative way. Right, so, so God has not abandoned humanity to the darkness that could ensue due to sin entering the world, but has carefully and kindly offered good things to all people so that this life might be less bad than it could be, so to speak. And that brings me to one of the basic features of common grace, and we'll get really practical really quickly, I promise, but one of the basic features of common grace is restraint. I say, what does that mean? Well, by restraint, I mean that God has, in his own judgment for his own reasons, decided to restrain his judgment on sin. Okay, so one feature of common grace is that God doesn't zap everybody instantly. You know, we used to joke in, in, in Bible college about what would happen 
if a ping pong ball fell on your head every time you thought a bad thought. And it's like the world would be, you know, overcome with ping pong balls. And so, so if God in his covenant of common grace through Noah has done one really wonderful thing, and that is he said, I will restrain immediate judgment on man's evil. And there's a second thing that comes through related to restraint, and that is that God says, I will also restrain man from being as evil as they could be. And so one feature of covenant common grace is that God restrains. And another feature of common grace is blessings. God not only restrains his judgment upon man's sin, but he also fills the world full of good things. He issues blessings. Now we can see both of these things in our text. I know I told you Genesis 9. Look at the very back end of Genesis 8, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then in verse 1 of chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So I've said that this is a covenant of common grace and that common grace is God's restraint and his blessings. And you can see all that in the text. You can see his restraint against judgment. He says, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, I will not judge man, even though every intention of his heart is evil from his youth. And then he says, so what he means there is, I will not do another catastrophic, temporal, immediate kind of judgment. I will be slow to anger. And then in verse 22, we see blessings as well. He says, in addition to being slow to anger, I can promise you that as the earth remains, so will seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night. So he's promising seasons. He's promising the beauty of the seasons, so you could say. And then again in chapter 9, verse 1, he says explicitly that he blesses them. So, summary so far. The Noahic covenant is with all the earth and all peoples. It is as relevant to you and I today as it was the day it was issued. It has never been retracted. It is a standing covenant. It is for all peoples, that's what makes it common, and it is undeserved, and that's what makes it grace. All right, all peoples, common, undeserved grace. And there's two more features I want you to see. There is always a mediator of God's covenants. God's covenants always include a mediator, and here that mediator is Noah. Noah is, I guess you could say, the top man on the pyramid when it comes to this particular covenant, when it comes to this particular plan. And I want you to understand that when we think about covenants over the next three weeks, it's important to know that every covenant is extended to the world through a chosen mediator. And here, Noah is that agent. He is, he is a, a special grace guy. He has received God's special grace 
Peter says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. But through Noah, common grace flows. And this is a pretty sweet idea. And that is, is that Christians are God's appointed agents of common grace. There's some way in which God's special grace to us in Christ flows into common grace for all people. I was thinking of specific examples of this, and I thought of one that occurred in, uh, well, around first century Rome and following, and that was that Roman men, when they decided they did not want a particular child, a particular infant that was born to them, they had the right to go to the city gate and throw that child outside the city gate to let it die of exposure. And, um, and uh, Christians would go to the city gate and pick up those kids and raise them as their own. And so you have these Christians who have been saved by special grace sort of doing a common grace thing, a common grace good for all the world to benefit from. And this is just the kind of the way that God does things. For instance, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, we see that the common grace applied to all people and all nations comes through one man. Or here we can see another example in, in Egypt. God decided to extend his common grace to keep the Egyptians and the Jews fed during a great famine. Well, how did, he, how did he bring that action into the world? Through one man, through a mediator, through a chosen person. So now we've got this idea of common grace, and we're saying, okay, covenants are mediated by, covenants have a mediator, and there's one more important feature to covenants that I want you to know about, and that is that covenants always start by God making a promise to himself. Covenants don't begin when God makes a promise to us. Covenants begin before that when God makes a promise to himself. In verse 20 of chapter 8, we could see this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. So this is really remarkable. And it's the key, honestly, folks, this is the key to thinking well in general. Thinking well in general involves going all the way back to first principles. It means asking the why behind the why behind the why and trying to, as best you can, get to the very bottom of a thing, the very first principle of a thing. And covenantal thinking is good thinking because it allows you to see what God was thinking. It, it allows you to access the very first principle of a thing. And so here in this covenant, we see at the heart of all of this, beyond everything he said, before he said anything to Noah, God had purposed to make this covenant in his heart. When we look at all the outstanding covenants in the Bible, we've got to conclude this is the most important and remarkable feature, and that is all of God's promises start by him promising it to himself. And this means that his promises are not dependent, first and foremost, on us. They're not even reactive, first and foremost, to us. So before he approached Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, before God said anything to Abraham, He'd already sworn that that would be so to himself. And before he approached David and said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, your throne will be established forever, before he ever said anything to David, he had sworn this promise to himself. 
And so when you begin to think covenantally, you begin to find the things that are not only true, but can't ever be broken. You begin to discover the deepest rules of the universe, the way things really are behind all of the clouds, behind all of the confusion. You see this very simple first principle thing. What God has decided will be so. And that's one of the beauties of thinking covenantally. You get down to the deepest levels of reality. Now, that's just some general things about covenants in general. Now, let's go ahead into our text and look at what are nine specific theses of the Noahic covenant. Now, you're like, oh, my goodness. Nine, oh, well, let me tell you, you've never seen, you've never seen nine points gone by so quickly as you're about to. So you just rest at ease. You're going you're gonna to be stunned by how quickly we cover nine points. I hope I did not overpromise there. I didn't. I'm sure of it. No. Nine features of the Noahic covenant. I'm calling them thesis because it's the idea that God is saying these are true things. Okay, and that, that word thesis is going to mean something to us toward the end of the message. So these are nine true things that God asserts. The first one, every covenant begins, as I said, with God promising to himself, but it also begins with the transcendence and eminence of God. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the first thing we learn from the Noahic covenant is that there is a God who has all the power and he is entirely separate from creation and yet that separation implies no indifference to the affairs of man. Let me say that a different way. God's big, he's powerful, there's nothing more powerful. He is completely independent. He can't be bribed. He can't be swayed. God stands. He simply is. And he notices you and cares about what you do, say, think, don't do, don't say, don't think, and so on. This is what theologians mean when they say the transcendence and eminence of God. He is separate from all creation. He is over all things, but he is not indifferent to anything. That's the foundation of this whole occurrence we see. The reason why there was a flood in the first place is found in Genesis 6 where it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God is a God who has all the power, all the priority, no one can sway him from his purposes, and he actually does care about who you are, about what you do, what you say, what you think, and so forth. And this is, if you've ever wondered, what does it mean to have the fear of the Lord? I have just described what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is believing that an all-powerful God who can't be bribed, bought, or resisted is also totally paying attention to you. And that, the Bible says, is the foundation of wisdom. So that's the first feature. The first feature is this, is this is about and coming from a God who has all the power and all the attention in the world and cares about what we do, cares about who we are, cares about how we act. And boy, I'll tell you, every other feature of a covenant or any other structure in a society depends on believing that. You know, over the years since the, the, the 
the initial decision of Roe v. Wade. For years and years and years, Christians have been engaged in a biological discussion. When does life begin? Is this life? When does life begin? Is this life? When does life begin? And we had to engage in that in part because of our scientific limitations and also the hardness of our own hearts. And so that question had to be answered. But here's this crazy place we find ourselves in today. While we were busy answering a biological question, the central theological question was not adequately addressed. And so now there is a biological certainty that that's life. But the theological question is, is there a God who even cares about what I do? And so we have to, we have to now keep, oh, keep working. There's always work to be done in the kingdom. And we've done the biological work, but now we've got to do the theological work and say, yes, it is a life, and yes, God cares about that. There is a God who exists, who sees all things, and has the power to reward and punish. And yeah, he cares about that. Which brings us to the second point of the Noahic Covenant. Again, I think Angela's idea of this being an agreement between landlord and leasee is really helpful. And the second point is simply this, make babies. The first point was, God is transcendent and imminent. The second point, make babies. Verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I did see a few high fives between husbands and wives just now. And God says it again in verse 7. You know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So point two of the Noahic covenant, make babies. Point three of the Noahic covenant, rule over animals. Verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Number 4, eat animals. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Number 5, kill people who kill people. Verse 5, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Number six, human life is valuable because of the image of God. Verse six again, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Number seven, count on ecological stability. In Genesis 8.22, he says, While the earth rem remains, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then he affirms that again in verses 8 through 11. Then God said to Noah in chapter 9, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant, verse 11, with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Number eight, eighth marker of the Noahic covenant. Let the rainbow be a sign of godly restraint. And you can see that in verses 12 through 17. And number nine, probably the second most important thing in this covenant. Shame those who boast over the sins of their fathers. Shame those who boast over the sins of their fathers. 
What do we mean by that? Well, it comes forth in a story, but it's a covenantal story. It's an instructive story. In verse 20, we see that Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, the son of Noah, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. What's happening here is, I saw dad screw up. Let me make a point of it to make myself look better. The other two sons had a different response. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brother, shall he be to his brothers. So essentially the ninth feature of the Noahic covenant is shame should fall on young people who point out in effort to make themselves look better the sins of their fathers. So God has determined, and the reason why this is so, uh, so covenantally important is Ham had just seen God say, you know what, I'm going to restrain myself in judging sin. Ham had just seen this from God. And he stood like that one kid from The Simpsons. Ha <laughs> ha, that kid. But more than that, the deep ingratitude of this young man, who probably wasn't that young, this young man who was the only reason. Who was the mediator of the covenant? Why did Ham escape the floods? And so this is one of those cases of people standing on the shoulders of giants and poking them at the eye. It's, it's an example of people standing on the shoulders of giants and then criticizing the view. And so this is a fundamental covenantal structure for how to live life. Don't do that. Because the Bible actually says that if we honor our fathers and mothers, and it's not because they're perfect, but if we honor our fathers and mothers, and that includes our forefathers and those who go before us, if we make some effort to honor them, it will go well for us, and we will live long in the land. And so here you have these nine covenantal features. Let's see if I can remember all of them. Uh, the transcendence and eminence of God. Make babies. Animals are your servants. Kill people who kill people. Eat some meat. Let the rainbow be a sign of God's restraint. Don't freak out about ecological disaster. And don't celebrate young people who point out the sins of their fathers as a means of self-aggrandizing. Now, perhaps, perhaps not, but perhaps you've noticed something bubbling up to the surface. I have done a very basic and fairly literal exposition of the Noahic covenant, which is God's covenant of common grace for all peoples. And it's basically a worldview. It's a covenantal worldview, a really good one. But how is it, by simply outlining this worldview, have I stumbled into accidentally outlining two worldviews? Do you get what I'm laying down there? 
I have just stated the nine theses of God in the Noahic covenant. And essentially, if you take a photo of that and turn it into a negative, you get a cohesive worldview observable in this day and age. It's like, how is that? Like, like I didn't go looking for that. Like, it's the elephant in the room. You just take the nine theses and say, you know, it's weird. It's not weird. It's not weird that some of us would disagree with one of these things. That's not, that's not weird. There could be good reasons or even individual sinful reasons. That's not what I'm pointing out. It's not weird that some of us would say that, yeah, I'm not sure I, 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 I believe your take on this point or that point. Again, completely understand. It's just strange that I could outline the nine theses of a covenant that took place essentially in prehistory, but just about, and that it could reliably outline a worldview simply by inverting all the ideas. That's strange. It's strange that you could take these nine points and invert them, turn the thesis into antithesis, and wind up with the following. There is no God, and if there is, he isn't concerned about what I do. Overpopulation is a real problem. Animals are our equals. Veganism is virtuous. Capital punishment is barbarous. Life isn't valuable, or if it is valuable, it's valuable for some practical reason. Quality of life, sustainability of life, age of life. Rainbows aren't signs of God's restraint. Rainbows are signs of our throwing off restraint. See Romans 124. We should definitely live on ecological high alert. The earth is on the precipice of total ecological disaster, quite probably from a massive flood. And children who make much of their forefathers' sins and blind spots should be head put to the front of the line on Twitter. It's like, how, 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 did, you know, how is that like possible? How is the phenomenon that we're seeing here possible? Because, again, this would not be, this would not be a, a means of, like, picking a fight over, hey, if you think this one thing, if you disagree with me on this one thing, you're clearly wrong. That's not what I'm asking at all. There could be legitimate reasons for not having children. There could be legitimate reasons for not eating meat. What I'm asking is, why, why are these in a cluster on both, the, on both sides, on both the thesis and the antithesis? Why are these both worldviews? Well, I suppose one thing we probably could say is that there, there is obviously interconnectivity between these ideas. So that if you flip one, others flip two. You could make some kind of argument, especially because God makes covenants in an interconnected way. You could make some kind of argument that these ideas are so interconnected that if, if you start fiddling with them, you, you, you wind up getting more than one changed. But I think it's also really important and worth talking about, which is why we're at this point, to be reminded that there is a thesis in the world, and that is God. It's God is the, Jesus Christ is described as the logos, the idea, right? There's a thesis in the world, and that is God. And what he says are also thesis, and these theses are true. But there's also an antithesis in the world. So, so when God says in Genesis 2, on the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die, that's the thesis. And it just is what it is. 
but we don't have to wait much longer. We're in Genesis 3 and we see an antithesis presented. You shall not surely die. For on the day you eat of this, the Lord knows you will become like him, discerning between good and evil. You know what this all reminds me of? The upside down. It's this, it's this opposite world. It's this taking the thesis and inverting it into the antithesis. And we need to remember that that's a real thing. And that there is a supernatural force teaching the antithesis. Even as there is a supernatural force, God teaching the thesis. It's, it's something that's very important for all sorts of reasons. But one of them is, is that if you try to explain something like what I've just shown you without a spiritual reason, you know what you are? You're a conspiracy theorist. Do you know what a conspiracy theorist is? It's someone who's trying to find a purely material explanation for a bunch of things that are coordinated, that appear to coordinate them themselves. Now, of course, one option is, is they're not actually coordinated. But another option is, is they are, but it's not been like a group of people met immediately after the Noahic Covenant in a back room and started saying, let's start preaching the antithesis. There's a spiritual force at work. There is the antithesis, Satan himself, who Jesus says was a liar from the beginning. And he has this essential duty to turn everything God says upside down. I'm sure you've met the kind of person who is a reflexive contrarian. Like if you said the sky was blue, there would be some impulse in this person they might control the impulse, but inside their hearts, they're running through options. <laughs> like, in what way could I disagree? This person that's kind of got, essentially, here's how I would describe it. They are enslaved to the idea of being free. And so they, they can't just agree. They can't just go along with the thesis. There's something in them. Their identity is staked in not conforming. Their identity is staked in rebellion. It's like rebellion is good support, submitted to God. Rebellion is quite useful, but all things, all good gifts can become perverted, of course. So you've got this idea, and I think we all know people like this, and maybe we've all been people like this at one point, especially when we're young. This tendency to say, I don't think you're right to whatever thesis is asserted. This tendency to rush to be, what's the phrase? The devil's advocate. Interesting. This antithetical instinct can be useful, but not when it comes to God and God's word then it's just suicidal. Dorothy Sayers, brilliant writer, sort of the female C.S. Lewis in some respects, once wrote this beautiful essay on how there are certain laws that God has created, and she would put the Noahic Covenant in that category. So there's certain laws that God has created that you can't break. And she talks about the law of the stop sign as a law you can break. 
So you, you drive up to a stop sign, and it's a law that you're supposed to stop, but you can choose not to stop and, you know, probably be fine. But there are other kinds of laws that aren't like laws of the stop sign. They're just the truth. And when you try to defy them, you just defile yourself. When you try to break these laws, you just break yourself. And so the unchecked, antithetical spirit can wind up seeing what God presents as common grace. In many ways, peace and prosperity are the best you can get in a sinful world. And the antithetical mind can look at that and simply say, because God said these were good, they're not. When God says up, I have the urge to say down. When God says light, I have the urge to say dark. This is described in a psychological sense, in a social and psychological sense, as something called oppositional defiance disorder. Oppositional defiance disorder. And apparently if you let it go really checked, it goes into antisocial personality disorder. I feel like oppositional defiance disorder sounds worse than antipersonality, you know, but whatever. And there are these psychiatrists who like, look at these particular sets of behaviors and can say that in terms of social interactions, certain people uh, map onto these tendencies to be excessively antithesis, antithetical, to just disagree by nature of who they are. But there's a deeper version of that. And it's, Paul refers to it in Ephesians 2 as being a son of disobedience. And that is, you just are in bondage to the antithesis. You know, I don't know if you saw this week, some of you I know did, Jordan Peterson published a, a video, I think it came out this week, a challenge to Christian churches. And the challenge was essentially, do what you can to reach young men because they're drifting and they need the church. And then he says to the young men, you need the church, so on and so forth. But as I watched that video, I immediately thought of all of the young men who are caught in the antithesis of life, antithesis of life. You know, pornography is the antithesis of marriage. Right? That's what pornography is. It's the antithesis of marriage. And there are these men, these young men who are bound up, captured, if you will, enslaved to the antithesis Sometimes people will talk about self-sabotage. It's like, well, what does that mean? What is self-sabotage? Well, in a way, you could explain at least some, some of that through this idea that here God lays out what are obviously more superior ways to live than the alternatives. And yet there's this, this need coming deep down in their very nature that looks at God's good ideas even even the ones that are immediately and obviously beneficial, and must say, well, because you said it, I'm going to do the opposite. Well, this is one of the main problems with this Noahic covenant. And that's simply this. One of the main tensions that arises when God is especially good to people is that they are not 
capable, really, of receiving his goodness. They are bound up internally in all sorts of ways that just doesn't even allow them to enjoy and appreciate what he has done. I guess you could say that common grace extended does not necessarily imply common grace accepted. And so you look at people who are living in the antithesis and you say, what's up with this? It's like, well, this is actually who we are apart from Christ. Paul sums this up by saying, we were dead in our sins and trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, and again, the spirit of the antithesis, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let me introduce to you one more reason why God had to bring a new and better covenant. Because even when he extends common grace, mankind, bent and defying God, refuses to accept it. God extends his hand. He gives us light. He gives us truth. He gives us key indicators of like, hey, this would be a good behavior that would help you to live long and be fruitful and multiply. And because it came from him, we say, the opposite is true. Remember the features of the covenant on the front end of this message? God makes up his mind before he speaks. It's so. He restrains his own judgment against sin. He issues blessings. And all of this takes place through a mediator. This is why I'm so excited to talk about covenant over the next two weeks because we're almost done here. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God extends a grace, a covenant of common grace, and essentially beginning with Ham, that hand is, slipped, is, is slapped away or bitten. So God brings a new covenant. And it is initiated by God before it ever is spoken to any of us. Verse 4 says, in Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The new covenant of Jesus Christ, the covenant of the gospel, is a covenant which began in God's heart before the foundation of the earth. 
We said another feature of the covenant was related to restraint of judgment. And we can see in Ephesians that this, this covenant, the new covenant in Christ, it's not just God's restraint upon judging us, it's the removal of judgment. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We said that, uh, we said that God's covenants bring blessings. And we can see in verse 3 of Ephesians 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a way better covenant. It's like God says, hey, uh, in the Noahic covenant, I'll give you fall and then winter and then spring and then summer. So you get seasons. And also meat. Hey, not complaining. In the new covenant, he says, I'm going to give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In, in the Noahic covenant, he says, in the Noahic covenant, he says, I'm going to, you're going to make me really mad because every intention of your heart is always evil, but I will restrain myself. I will not nuke you immediately anymore. In the new covenant, he says, I nuked Christ. I flooded him with your flood, with your judgment. So now, I'm not just restraining myself when I'm around you. I actually love you like a son and a daughter. And of course, this new covenant, this better covenant, that just maps on top of the old one, it's, it has to have a better mediator, right? So Noah, well, Noah's, Noah's a mixed bag. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad Noah was alive. I, I owe my life to him. I'm glad Noah was counted as righteous. I'm glad he was a herald of righteousness when building the ark. I'm also glad that one of the last things he did was get super drunk and lay naked in his tent. Because I'm under no illusions that way that he is my savior. And this is how God ends so many of the other covenant mediator stories in the Old Testament. It's like, he was good, but not great. And then we get to Christ, who is the new and better Noah. And you, dear friend, whether you are however antithetical you might be, you, my dear friend, should run into the shelter, the ark of Jesus Christ and take shelter there and participate in the new and better covenant. Now, what would keep you from doing that? You know what would. That same little antithetical turdiness that you guys have, that we all have. That even Christ can be extended to an individual and they would say, well, so says you. Or no, thank you, is madness. But Christ is offered nonetheless. And what we find is, is that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we ourselves become mediators of the covenant of common grace in the world. If I had a ton of money, I would, like a lot, I would buy a big plot of land next to the Creation Museum is in Kentucky. Is it in Kentucky? 
I would do this to leech off of the precious homeschool vacation dollars. And I, I would buy a big plot of land right next to it, and I would build the, the Museum of Common Grace. And when you walk in, it'd be this big stone thing, and it would have the covenant of, uh, of God's covenant with Noah there. And then it would have two wings, and one wing would be restraint. And that would be like showing people, look at all the ways God doesn't destroy us when we deserve it. And look at all the other ways God has restrained human evil throughout the earth. And you could do like a special exhibit on, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's like, we were this close. And then you could take them to the other wing, and it'd be blessings. It'd be like, doesn't, doesn't it smell cool after a thunderstorm? And how, why does sunlight on your face feel so nice? And why is fall so awesome? Why are motorcycles beautiful? And, you know, so on and so forth. It's like, because God has made a covenant with this place and with all who reside there. And he's restraining himself. And he's blessing us. See, I think the covenant of common grace is more interesting than the size of Noah's boat, personally. So I would not feel bad mooching off of some of those homeschool tourism dollars. But as wonderful as that covenant is, it was something we simply could not embrace unless God changed the antithetical heart that each one of us had when we were by nature children of wrath following along with the rest of the sons of disobedience. So if you're here today and you have taken shelter in Jesus Christ, you have him to thank for your capacity to enjoy anything approximating the good life. You have him to thank for your capacity to read a good idea in the Bible and not create the opposite out of spite. You have only him to thank for your capacity to enjoy common grace. It turns out special grace had to come first because the problem all along was inside. And that's what Jesus came to address. Well, God's rainbow was a visible sign of the Noahic covenant, and you know where I'm headed. Here we have a table set before us as a visible sign of the new covenant. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Look at how our new mediator handles wine. Look at how, look how our Noahic mediator handled wine. Look at how our new mediator handles wine. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, that's just so beautiful. And one of the things that has just got me singing this week is I studied all of these covenants, and I found this massive pattern, and that is whenever God makes a covenant, he always, his name always comes first. So every covenant is built on God's name. And here you see Jesus instituting a covenant, and he does not invoke God's name because he is God. This is a covenant bound by the Most High God, he being 
Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ initiates that covenant in his name because his name is God's name. So if you're a follower of Jesus, come to your rainbow, the better sign of a better covenant. Let me pray. Lord God, we love you. You are amazing to us. You are full of power. You are full of goodness, truth, and beauty. We worship you, dear Lord. We worship you, Lord, for the heart to worship you, which we would not have apart from your saving grace. Lord, many of us still have plenty of sin remaining, plenty of instances like similar to what Paul described in Romans 7. It's like, even when I see the good, something in me says, now, Lord, we trust you with our sanctification. We trust you with the remaining sin that still does weigh down and easily entangle. We trust it all to you. So this week, Lord, looking backward, some people might be able to say, well, I had an okay week. I'm not aware of any major train wrecks. And then others here might say, Boy, I just have not been faithful to the Lord. Today, Lord, as we prepare to partake of this table, let's, let's really affirm, gladly affirm, that you have paid for our sins. You are not merely, as in the case of the Noahic Covenant, restraining yourself from judging us. Lord, you are embracing us and loving us. You're not tolerating us. And Lord, may we come to this table celebrating our newfound identity through Christ as sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.